Um, as with each week, our first Bible reading is our non-sermon reading. We just read through parts of the Bible because it's good to hear it read even when it's not being taught on, and hopefully that's supplementing your own Bible reading that you're doing at home. Uh, but we are going to spend some time thinking a little bit more about that second Bible reading, which I suspect is much more familiar to most of us, although perhaps more familiar at Christmas time than at this time of the year. But I'm going to pray as we begin, uh, perhaps that the familiarity won't uh, cause us to miss the significance of what this is saying to us. Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that th- these words, which we often read and hear at Christmas time, that they will resonate to us in some fresh way today. <clears throat> that we won't miss what it is that you're saying to us, but that we will hear them as your words and the significance to, uh, of them for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace on earth. That's what the angels sang at the announcement to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, and it is such a, a, a beautiful ideal, isn't it? Such a, such a great idea that I'm sure we would all love to see. And, and during the week, that song that the angels sang, Peace on Earth, um, that has been kind of resonating in my mind and it's made me think about two other, th- two other songs that have been written and sung that are reflecting on those words of the angels. Um, the, the first is, I guess, a fairly obvious one. It's the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know how it goes. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We sing about that peace on earth every Christmas time, right? That's the first song that I've been thinking about this week. The second one is maybe less familiar in its association with Christmas, but the connection with the angel's announcement about peace on earth is still clearly there. It's by you too, and it's called Peace on Earth. Anyone know the song? I won't get you to sing it for us. Let me read the lyrics out. It goes like this. Heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around, sick of sorrow, sick of pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. It goes on. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground, peace on earth. Jesus, in that song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? Quite powerful lyrics, isn't it, from you you two? We, We sing the Christmas carol every Christmas, but I suspect that whether we know you two's song or not, their words kind of perhaps resonate with us right throughout the year and and, and we ask the question that that song is asking. Where actually is this peace on earth that the angels sang about 2,000 years ago? Was it a false hope? Hope and history won't rhyme. Did that baby born in a manger fail to deliver on the angelic promises that were made at his birth? Well, I'm going to suggest that, that you two's answer to that question is, is no, that this is not a case of unrealised expectations. 
Rather, what it is, is a case of needing to get our expectations about that baby, about Jesus, about that peace that was announced at his birth, to get our expectations right. And in fact, I would suggest that Luke's gospel is about making sure that we get our expectations about Jesus right. We have been hearing over the past few weeks about how Luke has written his gospel to his friend Theophilus so that he can know the certainty of the things he has been taught about Jesus. And what's going to be a big part of that is to make sure that he understands what Jesus is really all about, what he did do and what he didn't do, getting our expectations about him right. And this chapter about the birth of Jesus and the clearly massive expectations that were declared at his birth it begins to do that for us. It gives us a glimpse of what is coming throughout the gospel, throughout the life of Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled expectations about him in an unexpected way. You know, people always bring their assumptions uh, about Jesus and expectations about Jesus. They did it back then and we still do it today. And so Luke wants to make sure that we get those expectations right. And how we're going to do that today is we're going to look at how this unfolds through Mary and Joseph's eyes. And in particular, we're going to look at some contrasts between what is said about Jesus and what Mary and Joseph experience and understand about him. And so the first kind of contrast that we're going to see is a contrast between grand and humble. That is the experience between Mary and Joseph and and their experience of the birth of Jesus, and what the shepherds experienced with the angels. So I wonder if you could take a moment with me now to imagine what it must have been like for those shepherds. You know, just another night, these shepherds gathering around, probably around a campfire, trying to keep warm, listening to the bleating of sheep, when the night sky just explodes with light. The angels' announcement to the shepherds was unmissably dramatic, right? As far as announcements go, they don't get much grander than this. First one angel lighting up the darkness and then literally a whole host, an army, it says, of angels singing at the top of their lungs. It'd be like being in the city for the New Year's Eve fireworks display, right? You can't miss it. Light, sound, it's the kind of thing that you would expect for a huge announcement or celebration, which is exactly what this is. The angel said that the child to be born is the Messiah, the long-expected, the long-promised king of God's kingdom who would reign forever, who would rescue his people, a saviour. This was a no-expenses-spared moment. It was full of fanfare and grandeur. But now compare that to the experience of Mary and Joseph. Yes, they had also been visited by an angel about nine months earlier, but now their experience of the birth of this child was far from grand. It was entirely ordinary, in fact. The comparison makes me think, anyone been to New Year's Eve fireworks in the city? I've been a few times, and when you're there... You just can't miss it, right? You think surely the whole world can see this, that's so bright, so loud. I've been on that end of the experience. 
And I've also had New Year's Eve where I'm in bed by 10 o'clock. And for me, in that situation, the, the fireworks might as well not be happening. I've got no consciousness of them at all. And it feels like that's the comparison between Mary and Joseph and the shepherds at the birth of Jesus. And Mary and Joseph's experience is, is that ordinary one. In fact, below ordinary, I think you'd have to say, wouldn't you? You know, this king to be born is not born in a royal court. There is no pomp and ceremony around his birth directly. He's born in nothingness and humility. They couldn't even find a place for his family to stay, and so the baby was wrapped in cloths and laid in an animal's food trough. It'd be like, I guess, if you know Princess Mary of Denmark, our princess that we like to claim for ourselves, and, and Prince Frederick, if they came to Australia for the birth of a child and no hospital space was available for them. And so the baby was born in Pete's backyard shed and, and put in a rusty wheelbarrow. You probably don't have any rusty wheelbarrows, do you, Pete? You've only got good ones. But it, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of comparison that is happening here. It just doesn't fit the, the picture of royalty, does it? So that's the contrast that we get with the birth of Jesus, the most dramatic and impressive announcement possible next to a humble and unimpressive and entirely ordinary birth. And that begins, I think, to alter our expectations. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, a saviour sent by God, and that's worthy of a heavenly chorus singing his praises. But it's also going to be humble and in many ways unimpressive for those who see him. So that's our first comparison. Our next comparison we're going to see is with Mary and Joseph compared to Simeon, the old man that they meet in the temple. And here we're going to see that the significance of Jesus is global, but at the same time very much individual and personal. We are told here that Simeon has been faithfully waiting for God's Messiah to come. In fact, he'd been told that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. And when he finally sees Jesus, somehow he knows that this child is the one. And so he utters this spirit-filled, prophetic praise to God for this child and the salvation that this child would bring. And, and I'm going to read those verses in a moment, but before we look at what he actually said, notice straight after what he said how surprised his parents were about what he said in verse 33. It says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. You know, they didn't go, of course, our son is the Messiah, of course you'd say amazing things about him. No, they marveled at it, they were surprised. Now that could be that they're marveling because He's saying such remarkable things about this otherwise ordinary child and they just don't quite get it. And that seems to be the case later on in the next section where the 12-year-old Jesus is in the temple and they can't find him. We're told specifically in verse 50 that they didn't understand yet who Jesus really was. But I think back here when Simeon says what he says, they're marvelling about something quite specific about what he says, something that is worth marvelling at. Have a look now at what Simeon says, particularly about the, the scope, the, the breadth of the salvation that this child will bring. I'm going to read from verse 29. 
He said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Did you notice the scope of the salvation? It's not just for Israel. It's for all nations, for the Gentiles as well as for Israel. It's a global salvation. And that might not seem surprising for us at this end of it and what we're used to hearing, but this would have been surprising. This is no kind of national, political, military restoration of the kingdom of Israel that Simeon is predicting here, like what was under King David that we read about in our other Bible reading. What this child will bring is far bigger than that. It's global. Now, the prophecies of the Messiah did speak about a global blessing to all people, but people's expectation still was very much on the restoration of Israel. Have a look at uh, what it says in verse 25. Simeon was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Or again in verse 38, People were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Very much Jerusalem and Israel-centric salvation. But Simeon's prophetic outburst blows the scope of that so much bigger. It's a global salvation that will shine into all the nations. So it is global, but it's also personal and individual. So have a look now with me in the next thing that Simeon says in verse 34 and 35 about how personal the impact, how individual the impact of this child will be. Then Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. See, the good things that this child will bring won't just be automatic for everyone, even everyone in Israel. It says some will rise and some will fall. It's, It's a very personal and individual experience. It it's a, reminds me, I guess, in contrast to the people who represent us at the Commonwealth Games. You know the Commonwealth Games are on at the moment, right? And Australia does pretty well at that. And whenever our Aussies kind of win, their wins kind of automatically rub off well on us. They represent us. Our association with their victories is kind of automatic, right? We get to say, we won even though I didn't do anything. I was sitting on the couch eating ice cream, but go you. Their victory kind of represents us automatically. Simeon is saying that will not be the case for Jesus. This child will cause the falling as well as the rising of many in Israel. That is, benefiting from his victory is not going to be automatic because some will oppose him. He will be spoken against And as a result, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. This child, this man Jesus, will show where people really are standing with God. It will expose our hearts. And that was particularly true for the leaders of Israel when they rejected 
Jesus as their Messiah when they killed him. It exposed where their hearts were really at, that they cared more about their power, about their wealth, about their religious traditions than they actually cared about being right with God. What a tragedy. And yet that's still true for us today, isn't it? Jesus has won a victory for all of us. But it is not automatic. It must be personal for every one of us. It doesn't matter about your family, about your past, about your culture, about your religious activities. Jesus exposes the thoughts of our hearts. And so we, each one of us, must turn to him in our hearts, each and every one of us. The person next to you can't do it for you. I can't do it for you. Your family can't do it for you. Jesus calls each and every person to put our trust in him. So the scope, you see, of Jesus' salvation, of the peace that he brings is global, but also very much personal and individual. And this is where I want to bring us back now to where we started with the angel announcing peace on earth at Jesus' birth. What I've been suggesting is that the birth of Jesus presents for us an unexpected expectation. And I think it does that at his birth because the life of Jesus shows that he is the Messiah, the Saviour, but not the one that people might have expected. He was humble and in many ways unimpressive and he brings peace in an unexpected way. And I wonder if I should, could just highlight that with one particular important example in chapter 19, which you might like to turn up with me now, chapter 19. This is getting right towards the end of Luke's Gospel now. As Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, right towards the end, near, near where he's killed. And Luke has devoted 10 chapters of his Gospel to the journey up to this point. It's, it's a big climax and Jesus, in this moment, he kind of runs, rounds the final bend and over the final hill and sees Jerusalem. It's like, you know, when you're going on holidays in, to, the, to the beach and you make that last turn and then all of a sudden, there it is, there's the ocean and you have that awesome kind of holiday feeling. That's like this moment when Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. The king is arriving to the capital city and the crowds are gathering around him and celebrating the triumphant king. And yet... Right in that moment, something unexpected happens. Jesus weeps. He bursts into tears. And not happy tears either. Tears of grief and pain because he knows the price of peace, both for himself and for Jerusalem. Let me read these verses now. Chapter 19, verse 41, down to 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. 
You see, peace for Jerusalem, it turns out, would not come through the victorious overthrow of their Roman oppressors. Instead, what Jesus is predicting is the opposite of that. The destruction of Jerusalem through war by their Roman oppressors, which is exactly what happened just a few decades later. The Romans surrounded the city, they built embankments against them and they tore it down, including the temple. The path to peace was not going to be the one that they expected or that they wanted for that matter because they did not recognise Jesus as their Messiah, as the saviour that they needed, that God had sent for them. And how can you have peace if you kill the one who has come to bring peace? But ironically, at exactly the same moment, their rejection of Jesus and their killing of Jesus was the very thing that would ultimately bring them peace, the peace that they and that we really needed, the peace that the entire world needs, that is, peace with God through the suffering of the Messiah. Let me read these prophetic um, prophecy of, the, of Jesus made hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says this, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, the consistent message of the Bible is that you can't have peace in the world if you don't have peace with God, our creator. Now, we will always be out of step with each other if we are out of step with our maker. And that's what Jesus came to fix. And I know that's not the answer that our world is looking for. What we want is peace through political action, through social action, through technological improvements, through education. And those things have their place and and they do make a difference sometimes. They can be effective. And we want good ambassadors. We want good diplomacy between China and Russia at the moment, don't we? We want that to happen. And if you think back a few decades now, the, the... Uh, What John Howard's gun buyback scheme dramatically reduced gun violence in our country. Isn't that a good thing? But U2's song is still as true as, as it has ever been, right? There have always been wars and there always will be and we don't seem to be making that much progress in that area. The last century was the bloodiest one in human history and who knows what the next century will be like. Now, I don't want to be unduly sceptical about our efforts for peace, our human efforts for peace, but if we are going to cry out to God at all about the lack of peace on earth, if we ever are going to direct our cry to God about that, our questions to God about that, then we need to be willing to hear his answer. it's, It's both rude and dangerous to demand of God that he come and fix this problem that we are in and yet refuse to listen when he tells us what he is doing. And his answer, as we've seen, is both personal and global. It's personal, again, because it begins with each one of us personally. Peace on earth must start in the hearts of each one of us. God is calling each one of us back to himself 
to have peace with him through Jesus. And so the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald, gets it right. Peace on earth, God and sinners reconciled. And that peace is actually a starting point for peace with others. You know, Jesus says, what did he say? He tells us to love God, and if you love God, to love your neighbour as yourself. Right? In fact, not just your neighbour, he says, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Forgive those who wrong you. Turn the other cheek. I mean, does that sound familiar? That is the kind of thing that someone who is united with God will do with the people around them. At a personal level, someone who has peace with God pursues peace with others. You you may not be able to have any direct impact for peace on the war in Ukraine or rising tensions in China or, or whatever it might be, but you can have a direct impact for peace with the people around you because you choose to love, because you choose to forgive, because you choose not to hold wrongs against you that other people commit against you, because you choose to turn the other cheek, because the fruit of God's spirit is in you that produces love, joy and peace. And so it's producing that peace in you and through you. And so let me ask, is that true for you? Is the Spirit of God in you making you a force for peace in your life? That's what peace with God should produce in our relationships. But even even that is just a taste of what God will do globally and completely when Jesus returns. You see, Jesus came once to inaugurate peace, to, to, to begin peace by bringing us back to God, by giving us peace with God and to call people into that life of peace. But he will come again to make that peace a global, a universal reality. And the book of Revelation right at the end of the Bible just tries to paint a a beautiful picture of what that will look like. And I wonder if I could just take us to there briefly. Revelation 21 tells us that God will come and he will live with us. He will dwell amongst us and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. No death, no crying, no pain. It says the nations will walk in God's light. And let me read actually verse chapter 22, verse 1 to 5 of Revelation as we finish. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of his Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Did you hear that? The healing of the nations when God lives among us to bring peace. 
That is the final and perfect peace on earth that God will bring through Jesus for those who trust in the peace that Jesus brings. Peace on earth because we have peace with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you will help each one of us to know where peace is truly found, that Jesus has paid the price of peace with his death, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, that by his wounds we are healed. Father, we ask that each one of us will know in our hearts the need, the reality, the goodness of what Jesus has done for us and that we will have this peace. And we ask that by your spirit you will be producing us in us the fruit of your spirit, of peace in us amongst those around us. And so as we do that, Father, we want all the more to be looking forward to that day when that peace is a reality throughout the world around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.